Well, that's uh, right at the end there. You saw Pastor Z and I and we as a church have had a relationship with uh, Pastor Z's church for 20 years prior from my being here. The Millers, um, Snuffers, and Hendersons um, from our church began working with that church and have been doing English camps every summer, every year. And and they sent us this because this is what's going on right now in their lives. And it's kind of one of those things you weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and, and experience joy with those who joy have joy. We want to be a part of caring for people like they're caring for right now. So, Mike, would you kind of come up and just share with these? There are some ways that you can um, give and and help in this in this time. Yeah, any... Um Anytime something like this happens, people are naturally saying, how can we help? So we've just put together three simple ways that if you want to give financially. Uh, our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, has a lot a good presence over around Ukraine and a number of churches and ministries. You can just go to efca.org and give through that. Um, we also have a partner ministry called International Messengers, which our Poland team actually goes through many International Messengers. They are taking uh, specific donations, and they have resources in that area as well. Or if you simply would like to give to to Wyzetta Free, we will pass it on to Pastor Z and uh, funnel that through. Um, You can just do that through our website, wyzettafree.org, or our app. And once you go to give, make a donation, there's a designation drop-down. You can just pick Poland Church, Pastor Z. And I'm excited to say that we are over $10,000 already, um, just from some of the funds have been set aside from our outreach ministry, as well as a number of individuals have given. So we're excited about that. That description is on little sheets like this out in the lobby um, at the black welcome tables, if you're interested. Yeah, so in many ways, over and above, um, those kind of gifts can come. You have also been supporting, whether you know it or not, through the general fund. So continue to give. We thank you for your participation in this. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, I just think this is a huge blessing. When I look at numbers, uh, there's 2 million people. I mean, how how do you feed them? How do you shelter them? And this is just one church trying to be resourced. And so this is a natural time to um, fund not only food and shelter, but give opportunities for people to share about Jesus. So we'd love for you to participate in that. Got an exciting thing. Later in the service, we're excited about um, taking a time to vote. And for those of you who are members for the for the name change, but we also have some members coming in, and I would love for you to see. These are some of the new members that have been coming into our church. You can see them if they're around. You look around, see if you see them, and welcome them. Uh, we're glad you're a part of what God is doing here. People say, what is membership about? We really look at it as a way of saying um, we want to um, travel and journey with you even more closely as you are a part of our family and uh, the privilege of being able to say, I want to be invested in what God is doing here and we want to be invested in a special way in your life as well. So we're glad for those who have done that. One other quick thing I want to say before getting into the message is um, yesterday we had a great event, uh, a men's breakfast, and over a hundred, it's one of those things where we go, okay, maybe about 70 people. It just kept going and just like Ash Wednesday, it just um, was bigger than our room in Fellowship Hall could hold. So now we're starting to say, okay, when we do these special events, um, God, do you want us down in a gym, down in that area, whatever. So we're glad and excited about how God is moving. And, and that was just an a incredible experience to hear about how these four guys, and some of you have heard that story, were out west. Um, one of them was mauled by a bear and how God has used that and, and how God worked in and through that as well. So let me um, share with you 
I was going to share with you, we're in a new series, Passion and Suffering, and uh, it's, uh, I really wanted to do a, a Lent series to get us into thinking about that, and I was going to open it up and share with you kind of free form, but this morning in my journal, I wrote this, and I thought, I'd like to read this. Only problem was, I left it at home, so my wife had to return back, get it. She's incredible. Thank you, Grace. <laughs> So, Jesus, so this is what I'll do. I'll write in my journal things that have happened, try and reflect on what I need to really hear about stupid things I've done the day before, <laughs> sins I've committed, or things that are just blessings in my life. And I was looking, then I kind of turned and go, what's happening? And just say, God, be with me. And I just wrote, Jesus, today I began a new series for Lent, titled Passion and Suffering. And I didn't realize I was going to write this much. It is anchored in the five swords around Christ in the gospel. So there's five different mentions of swords in, around with Christ in the gospel. Mary and the sword of grief is what we're doing today. Peter and his disciples, and then the what I call the sword of confusion. The arrest scene, the sword of night. And also there is a Zacharias prophecy and what I would call the sword of shame. That's what we're going to be looking at in this season of passion and suffering. My prayer is that we will see the importance of honestly dealing with the negative experiences of suffering in light of God's kingdom life. We are not, as a culture or a church, often church universally, not ours, emotionally well-formed. We do not know how to grieve in the face of loss. We turn away, we get busy, we seek to numb the pain of loss through medicating addictions. We also make our mask our loss Lost with anger that turns to rage. We live in an outrage culture. We've experienced it. The church has promised a prosperity gospel, which includes emotional prosperity. We talk about discipling people or spiritually forming people and yet fail to emotionally form people to live as followers of Jesus in a world where there is beauty and goodness and joy, yet where there is loss, disease, war, and sin, which needs a group of people to model true spiritual health. The world is hungry for anyone, someone, to live not in a grief that leads to despair or an easy optimism that leads to a shallow treatment of the realities of suffering, Jesus in his word teaches this. Jesus, the most emotionally alive person, lived this way and calls us to honestly process grief, live with confusion, face the dark nights of our souls, understand our debilitating shame. We need to speak Jesus and live Jesus in our times of passion and suffering. And then I'd ask you to pray with me. Jesus, strengthen me, I wrote. Empower me. Grant me a relaxed heart and spirit so that I can, with joy, share the truth and power of your word in the context of your loving, gracious, comforting presence. Jesus, touch every heart who hears this. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand because we're going to read the word of God together. This comes from Luke, chapter 2. It's in the uh, birth narratives, which is interesting that one of the first swords that we'll find 
actually happens in a birth narrative. So let's read this together from Luke chapter 2. At that time, oh, you don't need to read with me. I'll read it. It's too much. (laughs) Thanks for being so willing, though. Those of you online, please read with me. Um, At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. The day, that day, the Spirit led him to the temple. I love how Spirit-led he was. So when Mary and Joseph came to present baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arm and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory or, or hero of your people Israel. And Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. And as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And the sword will pierce your very soul. You may be seated. As you went through that, there are three kind of movements that take place that are really important when we think about grief and we're talking about the passion and suffering and the people um, are experiencing passion and suffering. And, and, and they tend to be up in the very first part of that prophetic word, this idea of, um, I've seen the promise, I've seen your salvation, I see the glory, the light for everybody. Here is this God. We can celebrate. And it moves into this place of confession. So he celebrates what will be. He now moves in his confession to what needs be. Our agreement with what is happening, which ends in that last line, what I call grief. And a sword will pierce your very soul. Grief is kind of what is right now, what's occurring. He begins with this celebration. Jesus has come. He's filled promise. Finally, I can, I can actually rest and go home to be with you because I've seen the first fruits of it all. It's very reminiscent of the word of Mary that when she um, was pregnant and she went to visit her sister Elizabeth, her, her aunt Elizabeth, who really is like 40 years older than her. So we're talking a, a good wide age spread. She comes there, the baby kicks, they're excited. And, and, and Elizabeth just says, blessed are you, kind of the mother of the Messiah. And, and as a result of that, Mary falls on the ground and, and, and before God in song. It reminds me of, remember uh, just a couple weeks ago when, when we had um, uh, Kazim, Dr. Kazim and, and Narat here, and we were saying about these friends of ours who we were able to take as a church who were refuge, from refugees coming in, immigrants here in our country, lived in our yellow house. We thank God for what was happening. And she, I, I, I asked Kazim to say a few words. And asked Narat if she would pray. And when Narat prayed, she fell on her face first before God and just started singing. I was kind of thinking, I'm married, I could just see her, that's kind of very Eastern, kind of falls on and starts to sing. And as Narat was doing it, she was, she was singing and, and, and with her face to the floor about how God had cared and provided for them as refugees. And now they had full-time jobs and they actually have a new home. We've been able to see them get into a new home. And children in school, a couple that have started college, 
something they would have never dreamed possible when they came to the United States, and specifically here in Minneapolis in the summer of 2018. And so that's kind of what you see happening with Mary. I have the scripture of this, but I I think for time's sake, I'm just going to share with you. You can put that up there if you want. Just show the scripture. She starts bursting with God news. And here's the things that happen. She's basically... She's praising God for the kind of God who who will turn the world order upside down. The first will be last and the last will be first. That kind of concept. She goes on and she she just talks about how the humble um, become... uh, How they, they move to a favored position. How nobody moves to a place that's never forgotten. She talks about him pulling down the the proud, knocks the tyrants off their high horses. She talks about the starving poor being given a banquet, the callous rich being put out in the cold, all the opposite of what you see happening so often in our world. And she ends it, it's exactly what God, he promised beginning from Abraham right up till now. He was faithful in the past. And we live in the reality of that. And we celebrate, as she's praying that out and praising that out, what will be. And that's what happens with Lent. When we think about Lent, Lent begins with the celebration. It's this idea that we're in the middle of looking for what will be. The, the reality is, you know, we see things as they are, but we're given this promise, a celebration of what will be. We know that God will win. We can hang on to it if you really know God and have experienced in your life from your past going, I've experienced this, but I know that in the future this is going to happen. The fight's fixed, as Pastor Brian from our Zion Church will often say when we're praying. And you see this throughout Scripture, examples of the Lord's Prayer. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. There's this idea, it's going to happen. And in fact... Right before um, he goes to the cross at the Lord's Supper, listen to these words. Then Jesus told them, I have longed with passion and desire to celebrate Passover with you before, before I endure my sufferings. And then he says he raised the cup, it says in scripture, and he gives thanks to God. And once again, he says, he drank it, passed it to all of them. And he says, I promise you that the next time we drink this wine, we will be together Feasting at the Lord's kingdom. So we live with this sense of this celebrating what will come. Many people don't realize, even if you look at Lent, um, think about it for a second. What's the first day of Lent? What's, what, what starts off Lent? Anybody from high church background know? Ash Wednesday, right? You're wrong. You know what it starts with? Tuesday. What 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 it's called sometimes? Fat Tuesday, not the Mardi Gras kind of thing. You don't understand when they say it's Fat Tuesday. It was originally called Shrove Tuesday. This idea of penance and celebration. What they would do before you would come to the Ash Wednesday, where people preparing to, you know, saying I'm going to. Um, into a time of privation, I'm going to suffer or, or come along and, and recognize this so that I can be more attuned to the suffering and understanding God's love for us in a suffering world and sending Christ. But before that, they would empty all their butter and all that stuff because throughout all the way back to the 1500s, even before that, they would have pancakes. 
Fat Tuesday. That kind of idea that they would do a mini celebration before they endured and entered into the suffering. Because that mini celebration was to remind them throughout their life of what would come. Jesus says, I I just can't wait to celebrate this Passover with you. Before I endure my suffering. Because I want you to always, 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 always remember... In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the pain, what will be? There will be a final feast. And all those who walk and, 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 and live and, and, and allow Jesus to um, forgive them enter into that experience of what will be. Well, then he goes on in, in that passage of Scripture and he moves from this celebration of what will be, which you see, here and he moves to a um, prophetic sense of of what I call confession. He he kind of says, "Here's what needs to be in this world right now. Here's what needs to be. He has been sent as a sign from God." Verse thirty four. But many will oppose him, and as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Here's what needs to be: confession and agreement. This confession and agreement that says. Right now we're living in a world and we need to always remember not just what will come, but what has happened and there has been a fall. And sin and disease and darkness has entered this world. And Jesus has come and he's begin, begun to bring in this new kingdom and this new reality, but it is yet to come. And so there's confession of sense of here's what we need to understand and it's so important. In our world today, that this world is broken. This world is not the way it's meant to be. My life is broken. I am not the way that I want to be. I can say that because, you know, as a pastor, Grace and I, we've only had one fight in our life, and that was yesterday. Now I had one of these days coming up when excited for us to be together and, and, and I just did some things that just were really stupid and I just go back to this place and go, gosh, Jesus, I really need you. And I'm on my way to church today and I get a text from one of my daughters and both my grandsons have COVID. I go, God, how long is this going to be? There's just a sense of the reality of the world we're living in. And we live in this world where there's been loss. And if we don't understand it and live with it and truly model what it means to live as people who know what will be, but we also need to, in this time, confess, agree with one another, this is not what God intended. This is not what God thought, well, I'll do it. This is what you're called to live in forever. But you are called to live in it now. And we are called to live in it in a way where Jesus truly enters in and informs us. Not that there isn't beauty. Look outside, the beauty, the sun, goodness. We see all that stuff. That's all there. We need to celebrate it. But we also need to recognize, and I think when you look at our world today, there has been so much loss I think that's what you see when you see people in, you know, if, if you don't process your emotions of anger, 
You're not to live in it. It's, it's energy to be dealt with in a positive way. But if you don't process your emotions of anger, you move to a place of rage, which you see at work, in your neighborhood, in churches. If you don't process grief and the loss, what, you know, there's all kinds of loss that we've experienced from COVID. And, you know, people have this, this sense of, of what's happening in our racial relationships and what's happening in, in Minneapolis. We, we think of the loss that we see right now in the sense of what's happening in Ukraine. And, and we realize we're just, we don't have a lot of control. And so what he says is, you know, your thoughts are going to be bare, laid bare. And, and what Jesus does when he comes, when he, when he comes into life and when people see him for who he is, you can't help but either go in denial and defensiveness and pride and, and say, I, you know, I don't want this light shining onto my heart. Or you hopefully will then move to a place where you can see yourself and understand the love of Jesus that he sees it himself. He's not here to condemn you. And we need to be a people that begin to live that out and begin to live in a real way. Because you know what? If we don't look at the world as is, we have a tendency to either go to a place of despair and the sadness overcomes us and becomes frozen in us in a sense. And that's where you see people um, cutting themselves or, or doing things just to feel alive. If you don't deal with your grief and the sadness of it, despair moves you off into a place of addictions. You, you, need, you need some kind of quick buzz. So guys, you go to pornography because what you're really missing is deep intimacy, but you'll think you'll get the buzz because you're not. Or you go to some kind of a chemical dependency where you're just, if I can just get another glass, you know, some more alcohol or I can take this, whatever it is. I just need to go out shopping. I got to spend more money. We have a world that lives that way. And we also, I think, have a church that lives that way. And, and Jesus came and said, here's what I promise to do. I promise to walk with you and I'm going to lead you to a better place. But they're in a world right now where there will be suffering and the reality of that. And so you either can move to despair like the rest of the world and, and do the things the rest of the world is doing. Or you can go, what happens also in the Western civilization, I think we move more in the Western world to what I call an easy optimism. And you see them in all the self-help books. And you move to this place and, and, you, and you, you actually minimize the grief and the loss. And what you do then in, in, in order to stay in a place of optimism, instead of working through the grief and the loss, you begin to numb it. You begin to find ways... To ignore it. I was uh, reading a book that uh, I, I felt to be tremendously helpful. And her name is Trish Harrison Warren. And she talks about this experience of, of what you will tend to do when, she, when you experience this kind of... Um, brokenness in the world around you or even in your own world or in your own marriage or in your own family your own health she just talked about day after day she'd go to the TV or she would um, end up um, trying to distract herself by reading or whatever it would be and, and, and what we find here is this, this 
this verse that kind of grabbed hold of my heart. And it, it's, it's a line that for many years I've always thought, really, did you need to add this last line, Simeon? Right? I mean, here's a mother with a young little baby. And you say, and a sword will pierce your very soul. It's like a mic drop, right? Pure pain. Needle in the eye. Here's the Mary who's been treasuring all these things that have been so incredible in her life, and all of a sudden the Simeon says this. Because when you come to this part of this passage and you move from what I call this celebration of what will be and this confession of what needs to be, this acknowledgement of where our world is, where my life is, you move to this place where I think grief can be processed and needs to be processed, a sadness that allows for us to look at all that's going on and then invite God and Jesus into this. And grief is what is right now. And in this world, there'll be grief. There'll be sadness. So Simeon looks and says, you'll experience a sword of suffering and pain. If you're like me, I just want to read by those last words. And and the sword will pierce your very soul. But if you're honest and thoughtful, you really can't. These words are piercing and God meant them to be. This annual time when we come around the suffering and and passion of Christ and we enter into Lent is a constant reminder that this world is broken. And grief is one of the things that we experience. And it's one of the things that we need to actually disciple the the rest of the world in. I was sharing with you this book by, um, it was C.T., uh, book of the Year 2021 by Trish Harrison Warren. It's called Prayers in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. She says it was a dark year in every sense. It began with the move from my sunny hometown, Austin, Texas, to Pittsburgh in early January. One week later, my dad, back in Texas, died in the middle of the night. Always towering and certain as a mountain on the horizon, he was suddenly gone. A month later, I miscarried and hemorrhaged, and we prayed in the ER. Prayed that prayer we prayed earlier today. Grief had compounded. I was homesick. The pain of losing my dad was seismic, still rattling like aftershocks. It was a bleak season. We named it as a grim joke, and they said it was the pits of Despairburg, of which they moved to. Warren shares that a few months later, they were pregnant again. And it felt like a miracle. They were getting kind of to celebrate. But early on, I began bleeding. I was put on medically restricted activity. Many trips to the hospital, bleeding off and on. Finally, in my second trimester, we lost another baby, a son. I don't know how to approach God anymore, she writes. This is what I call getting real with grief. There were too many things to say, too many questions without answers. My depth of pain overshadowed my ability with words. And more painfully, I couldn't pray because I wasn't sure how to trust God. She knew what will come, but she's in the midst of confessing what needs to be. This world's broken, and she's moved into a place where she has been broken and experiencing grief. 
The 16th century St. John of the Cross coined the phrase, the dark night of the soul, to refer to as a time of grief, doubt, and spiritual cosmic crisis. When God seems shadowy and distant. And I think it's interesting that God allows for us in this time before what will be this time to confess and agree with what needs to be every year in a season of Lent. That forces us to look at ourselves and the world and go, wow, we really need you, God. And for some things that are occurring, there aren't necessarily just easy, quick answers. There are people around you. There are people here today who are moving towards despair, who are living with emotions that God wants to help you process and deal with, with wounds that have been there that he wants to heal. There are people here with addictions. There are people who are moving in this direction where you need to invite God in and you also need to begin to say, God, what are my next steps? Is there counseling? Is there some help? Is there a spiritual brother or sister? Where you begin to pray, where you begin to start saying, God, I, 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 I don't want to move to despair. I don't want to move to this. I want to learn how to live with what is right now, knowing what will be, being empowered by you. There are people who live on the other side. And, and don't tell me about Ukraine. I, I can only, and I get it. It's really, you mean, it's like you don't want to go to a movie to be traumatized, right? Hey, there's a great film out, and you go to it and you go, oh. That's what the world seems to be today. And you don't want a church. You know what? There's a study that was done that millennials, one of the main reasons they're leaving the church is because of a question called theodicy. It's a theological word that means that they can't put together a good God who allows people to suffer. And part of the thing that is a problem is they look at the church and the church hasn't given an answer for how you actually move into suffering and allow for God to move into that place to be with you in it. And how does God do that? Well, as you um, read this scripture, this scripture uh, there is this sense of reality. And what Luke 2.35 invites us to live in is this reality of what is. The words of Simeon reveals to Mary the reality of her son's coming pain and suffering. Lent forces us to face our limitations in reality of what sin has done and does to the world. The sword pierces our tendency to ignore the truth of what is. And sadness and grief must be faced and processed. So I just want to share with you, and I have the worship team come forward, some ways to process grief. But one of the things I, that we're going to get to is, um, as you read through Scripture, Jesus was totally emotionally alive. We were praying in the worship room, and one of the persons on our team said, you know, um, how Jesus knew that Lazarus would be raised in a few moments, but he wept. The Greek word is this deep, guttural, almost sound like an animal makes that. He was so deep within him, he was able to look at what is, and he, he wept. God 
weeps and enters into your experience. And he overcomes it on the cross. So when you think of this, I just want to share with you some things that are really important when we talk about grieving. This first, do not minimize your grief or the grief of another person. We're taught in our culture, often in the church, to minimize the emotions of anger, sadness, and grief. What we need to do is teach how do you understand those things and move to a place where they become energy that helps you become more like Jesus. Uh, some of you have heard, and I've used this as well around sermons like joy, that you know all you need to say is it could be worse. That's a really good truth because think about it. Whatever your situation is right now, you could be in Kiev, right? But the problem with that can be that it will minimize what you're going through. And that is just as important to God. In fact, very necessary for you to process through. And then embrace your vulnerability. Um, if you're feeling out of control, uh, you live, the word vulnerable just means to be wounded. You live in a woundable world. Uh, and you're not going to be able to go through life to shield those things. You can pray for God and you do wise and smart things, but you recognize you live in a woundable world. You can do a whole lot of things right, and yet because we live in a broken world as it is, we might face loss. All of us face loss, experience the pain of unrealized expectations, live with the reality that we are not in control. I wrote this, embrace your vulnerability and it will, and in it you will also begin to find humility and honesty. And then I'm just going to share that you use your vulnerability and grief to help someone around you. Jesus stood before his disciples with wounds and he showed them those wounds and he said, these wounds were for you. Some of the wounding that you've had, some of you've had in the past, are the very things that God wants you to use as comfort to help people process what they're going through right now. He is using those to speak Jesus in the life of other people. And he's expecting you to use what you've learned to help another. There's um, an author, his name's John Bloom. He actually has a really, you know, son-in-law to uh, Glenn and Lois Ferdine. But he writes this, and I think this is really good. Simeon had a painful message for Mary, but she discovered that For those who trust God, he uses soul-piercing events to unleash more grace, salvation, and joy into the world than we could have ever imagined. Our grief opens the door for others to experience God's presence, love, and joy. And he continues, he says, A sword will pierce through your own soul, says Simeon. The most wonderful, glorious event in human history was God sending his son into the world to the cross to save people from their sins. And this gracious event caused indescribable grief for Mary. And you need to note that. And as God works out his salvation of sinners, he leads us along an unexpected path that results in unexpected and sometimes agonizing pain. And when it does, we can remember Mary. The darkest moment of her life. The sword that stabbed the deepest into her soul was the moment that God used the most to bring salvation and joy to the world and eventually to her. 
And the deepest wounding may become the very channel through which the most profound grace flows. And the last is this. I'm just going to say trust Jesus. Jesus, before he went to the cross, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He's not trying to deny that emotion and anxiety. He's just saying, here's the direction you need to put it. It's in God. So he says, trust God and trust also in me. So this idea, not just trust God, but you need to trust Jesus. I'm going to close with the story, and then you guys can lead us in song. But there's a story of, of, of what I think it means to trust Jesus. We, we kind of play trust like a poker game, like, you know, the chips. Like, if I have enough chips of God's goodness, then I can trust God. But if I don't, have you ever seen that played? Julian Artist, who has always appreciated the beauty of this earth through her watercolor paintings, was told her young son required surgery. And the odds against it being successful for this little life was nil. And so like any parent, she was afraid, she was nervous, she prayed to God. Before the nurses wheeled their infant son into the operating room, Julie looked at her husband, Hunter, and said, we have to decide right now whether or not God is good. Because if we wait to determine that by the results of the surgery, we'll always be keeping God on trial. Her point was simply this. If the question of God is real or not, or whether God is kind or indifferent or some kind of cosmic jerk, is determined solely by the running balance of joy versus sorrow in our own lives or in the world, we will never be able to say anything about who God is and what God is like. We won't be able to tally the evidence correctly. But if the story of my short life and feelings determine God's character, then trust ends up being just a leap in the dark. Ever felt like that? Jesus said, trust God, trust also me. And I want you to catch this. In the Bible, Jesus doesn't give us an argument to prove that God is worthy of your trust. He gives you a story. God becomes a person. He becomes vulnerable, woundable, enters into our experience, takes on all of our sin, and expresses his love for you at the cross. And that is a verifiable, historical, established truth. So God gives you a story of how much he loves you and what he did for you. And then he says, trust God. This is what Jesus says, trust God. Trust also in me. Take God off trial. God is good. He's shown it in the story of his son. Whatever your experience is right now, begin to trust him and begin to start allowing for him to move into your life, to bring the healing that he needs to bring, to work through whatever grief, whatever sorrow, whatever pain, whatever brokenness, whatever woundedness you've had. And I will tell you, the path isn't always immediate. Sometimes God does that, but often God does it through step-by-step growth where we trust him again and again. So celebrate will come. Confess what's real, reality right now. And allow God to enter into your grief. Amen.